0: Hello, this
1: is the Red box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you a special festive delights. Uh, Patrick McGuire will be back with daily episodes of the podcast from January the 2nd. I'll be back on the 9th. But until then, we're going to be dropping our Leader of the Opposition feature in your timelines every day. In 2021, we rounded up every Prime Minister with Andrew Jimson. And in 2022, Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies has been telling us about every leader of the opposition who crucially never made it. To number 10 from Charles James Fox all the way through to Keir Starmer so let's get on with it then hit the montage
2: well it's uh quite a, a a long life so I'm gonna have to sort of gabble my way through it because he's quite a significant figure from the victorian um, era Um, and once again we've got a politician whose time as as leader is vastly overshadowed by his other career highlights Um, and he did come very close to becoming prime minister and indeed was widely expected to do so Um, he was a leading figure of the age Um, he earned the nickname the great gladiator although i'm always a bit suspicious of sort of flattering nicknames like that which sounds as though he probably gave it to himself Um, later on in his career uh, he was rather more unflatteringly known as, as Jumbo on account of ha- having put on uh, considerable amounts of weight. But um, his grandfather was Archbishop of, of York and his father was a vicar. So he came from quite a religious background um, and they were related to several of the noble families of the age, which became something of a, of a joke amongst his political opponents. Uh, during his career because he was rather a a grand figure uh, and somewhat arrogant. Um, But they were certainly a wealthy family, and later on he inherited the family seat um, and was um, worth around £21 million in in today's prices, so he was quite a rich man. Um, And the family were traditionally Tory, uh, and so when he became a Liberal that caused some tension, particularly with his brother who had become a, a Conservative MP. Um, He was uh, educated at home and then went on to to Cambridge. He was thought uh, to his father was uh, wanting him to become a a politician, but he resisted that and went into the law instead. And it was only quite late that he came into politics at the age of of 40, being elected, first of all, as the Liberal MP for for Oxford. Um, And he joined the government of William Gladstone uh, and was appointed, first of all, Solicitor General in, in his first government. And then later on, he became Home Secretary. Um, And it's really um, that that role and later on as Chancellor of the Exchequer, which really made uh, his name and why he's he's so well remembered uh, today. But I must mention, there was a a fascinating scandal during his time as Foreign Secretary, uh, as Home Secretary, rather, um, when... um, uh, there was what was known as the Harcourt Interpolation, involving a newspaper known uh, called The Times. Um, and in 1882, The Times published a, a transcript of one of his speeches that he'd made around the country, um, in the middle of which there appeared a very rude word, which I, I'm afraid I can't say on the radio, um, suggesting that he told the audience that he felt inclined for a bit of, well, let us say sexual activity. Um, and it turned out that the Times' um, compositors who put the, the plates together for printing the paper had been in dispute with the management. Uh, and one of them who'd recently been given his notice uh, had inserted that rather offensive line into the middle of the article which caused a bit of a uh, a panic at the time as they tried to recall all of the copies. Um, Later on there was a a huge leadership battle after he'd been Chancellor of the Exchequer. He was thought to be a natural successor to Gladstone um, but in the end the party um, went for uh, Lord Rosebery, who then became Prime Minister and it's thought one of the main reasons he didn't uh, succeed to the top job was
1: that he was so arrogant and frankly quite rude to all his colleagues. That was the story of Sir William Harcourt. Up next, the Liberal John Spencer, 5th Earl Spencer.
2: Well, yes, today we've got uh, another aristocrat, uh, although we're nearly at the end of our long list of uh, members of the House of Lords. Um so we're we're getting to the point where um it's it's always members of the House of Commons um after 1910 who Uh, leader of the opposition. So um, this week we're looking at uh, another John Spencer, uh, the fifth Earl Spencer. Uh, You might remember some weeks ago we had another member of the Spencer family who later went on to be, I think, the third Earl. Um, So this is um, one of his descendants. Um, And he was uh, the liberal leader of the opposition in the Lords in 1902 uh, through to 1905. So we are sort of squarely into the 20th century now. and he was, uh, we like a good nickname, uh, so he was known as the Red Earl um, on account of his large red beard. Um, and he spent a large part of his career in office as either Lord Lieutenant or Viceroy of Ireland, um, which put him at the centre of many of the sort of home rule debates that were raging around the time that he was active politically, um, alongside Gladstone, um, for whom that was a, a major issue. So that's mainly what he's remembered for in his time in government. Um to go back to the beginning, he was born in 1835. Educated at, I'm going to pause uh, briefly.
1: Uh, Eton and Oxford. Ah, uh, no, afraid not. Harrow. Ah, oh, we had <laughs> Harrow to and do Cambridge. Harrow and Cambridge. There we are. Yes, well, that makes a nice so, change. So, indeed, you have know, got to have a bit of diversity. This is diversity. This something? is this is um, yeah, early 20th
2: century diversity. It's social mobility in action. Yeah. Is what it is. Um, um, But he wasn't terribly academic. Um, He seemed to take more of an interest in cricket and horse riding. Um, And he then followed the rather familiar path of uh, being elected to the House of Commons. Obviously, he was destined to go to the House of Lords eventually, but he was returned as the Liberal member for South Northamptonshire um, in 1857. But he really wasn't there very long because later on that year, Uh, He succeeded uh, to the title, His Father Died Suddenly, and he became the new Earl Spencer at the age of just 22. Um, So, as I say, he spent most of his career um, as um, a a, a close ally of William Gladstone. Um, He served in Ireland, and uh, if you sort of read many of the biographies, a lot of it is taken up with uh, those debates about home rule, um, where he was, as I say, a close ally and supporter of of Gladstone's um, position on that. Um, so he served in many of Gladstone's governments, and then he was made first Lord of the Admiralty in Gladstone's very last government, which was in um, 1892. But actually, having been a close ally of his, it was actually his demand for increased defence spending, which finally led to Gladstone's resignation. Gladstone didn't want to accept the the, the Navy estimates that he put forward, um, and Gladstone actually resigned as Prime Minister rather than accept it. So. Um, if, if we are to place him in history, uh, for, for, for some um, achievement, he was the the catalyst for the, the, the final end of Gladstone's career. Um, but the odd thing is that despite that, Gladstone rather favoured him to be his successor. Um, and he told somebody that if he was asked for his recommendation by the Queen, he would recommend um, that he become Prime Minister. But Queen Victoria didn't ask. Uh, we know that Victoria didn't like Gladstone, uh, in fact she loathed him um, and so when Gladstone resigned she didn't ask for his advice on his successor and so she chose Lord Rosebery instead. So we have the first instance there of um, our first it could have been me moment um, where he, he was expected to become prime minister he was a leading figure in the party at the time um and didn't um they went into into opposition um some of the uh, leaders we've covered in the last couple of weeks were um, were then sort of leading the party um including our friend uncle kim if you remember from a few weeks ago ah yes uh, Uncle Kim. good uh, yeah indeed our, our good north korean um, earl of kimberley um he was leader of the the liberals in the lords until he died in 1902 and then when he died um, it was El uh, Spencer who then uh, took over. He wasn't terribly enthusiastic. He wasn't a great public speaker. Um, he was very quietly spoken and, and quite shy. Um, but he um, he was a leading figure. And so when the Conservative government fell in 1905, Balfour's government uh, was widely expected to fall. The Conservatives um, in uh, a highly unusual thing for the Conservative Party it was tearing itself apart um, in a sort of rouse over uh, tariff reform um, and so on. And so um, he was expected then, if the Liberals formed a government to become Prime Minister, um, that was widely expected, it would have been in line with uh, the recent uh, number of of peers who'd become Prime Minister. But just two months before Balfour's resignation, uh, in October 1905, Spencer suffered a very serious stroke, which removed him from the political fray. Um, And so two months later, Balfour resigned, and it was the leader in the Commons uh, Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman who was appointed PM instead uh, and he then went on to win a landslide victory in the general election the following year. So it it, it is a significant uh, figure in history that uh, Earl Spencer would and probably should have become Prime Minister at that point um, and
1: instead we had Henry Campbell Bannerman. And that's I suppose uh, so many things play a part in politics but but timing and luck is, is such a massive part of it that he'd done all the the hard yards, the cabinet jobs, the the roles in Gladstone's uh, eventual downfall, but but ultimately it was his health that, that, that stopped him um, crossing the the threshold of number ten. Indeed, it was a it was a, it's a really tragic
2: story because the the timing is is so important in politics, as you say. But actually. Just two months before that government fell, um, he, he would have been prime minister. It's widely expected that he, he would have done. He lived on a little bit longer after that, um, for about four years afterwards, but he never returned to, to active politics. Um, so, you know, of, of all of those that we've we've covered, there have been several who, who came very close to being prime minister, but I think he's the one who, who perhaps has
1: the most tragic story. Nigel Fletcher telling us the story of John Spencer. We'll come back with more opposition leaders after this.
2: right well this week we're looking at george robinson who was the first Marquess of ripon um and we always talk every week about those who failed to make it to number 10 downing street um well he managed that um at the moment that he was born because he was actually born at 10 downing street oh wow um, which um is is um very lucky from his point of view um that he was because um his father uh, viscount godrick uh, was serving very briefly as prime minister. Um, he was only in office for 144 days. I think he was the second uh, shortest um, tenure of uh, of any prime minister. Um, and uh, and so he was in office, um, and uh, his wife uh, had a baby, and uh, so he was born at 10 Downing Street. So um, he he really sort of didn't have any any more ambition to fulfil uh, at that point. But to be on our um, on our list. Um, We've said several times that uh, a lot of these people have um, long and distinguished careers and then a very short period that qualifies them as being a leader of the opposition. And if we jump to the sort of end and to, to sort of the um, twilight of his career, which is what qualifies him, he was actually only leader for a few months. If you remember um, last week, we we talked about the rather tragic story uh, of Earl Spencer, who suffered a debilitating stroke uh, just before the Liberals returned to office in 1905. And he was expected to then become Prime Minister. Um, But he had this stroke and um, and was debilitated at that point. And it was uh, the Marx of Ripon who then succeeded him as leader of the opposition um, in the Lords. And he then went on to be uh, leader of the House of Lords in um, Campbell-Bannerman's um, government. So he had a very short period as um, leader of the opposition uh, towards the end of his career. But what's really interesting about him is that, uh, or as my husband says, I'll be the judge of that. But what I think is very interesting <laughs> about him um, is that um, he's, he's probably the first <clears throat> leader of the opposition that we can say on this list. He was actually a socialist. Um, he identified with Christian socialists um, and was a, a radical in politics. Of course, at the time, the Labour Party wasn't um, in existence. Uh, when he entered politics, he was first elected to the House of Commons in uh, 1852. So he was a liberal, but very much on the radical um, wing of, uh, of the Liberal Party. Um, and so throughout his career, he espoused a number of, of very radical causes. He was very attached to um, greater uh, primary education, for example, Um, And that really came to fruition uh, later on during his career when uh, he served under Gladstone as one of his uh, very senior um, ministers. Um, And they did implement uh, reforms to, uh, to education, but also... Uh, he was very much in favour of Home Rule for Ireland and was supportive of Gladstone um, on that. Um, so there were a number of um, a, a very sort of progressive measures. But in terms of uh, the style of opposition, um, he identified himself as a, a, a progressive and a, as a radical, but also as, as somebody who um, took sort of uh, the, the changes that he was able to get um, uh, and uh, and built on them. He said that, you know, as an incrementalist, He said in a speech that um, he'd pursued radical objectives throughout his career by adopting an incremental approach of taking what uh, he could get and waiting then to get more. So he's actually an interesting case study of of somebody who started in politics with very radical ideas. I say probably the first um, socialist we can identify in in a senior position like that, Um, but identified that the way to get those uh,
1: those reforms was to be more incremental. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast, going through this month's Leaders of the Opposition with Nigel Fletcher. Next up, the brilliantly named 5th Marquess of Lansdowne, Henry Petty Fitzmaurice. Yes, it is the end of the Peer Show. Um, So,
2: yeah, I've been looking back at our list and of the first, this is the 20th Leader of the Opposition that we've done in this series. Doesn't time fly. Um, But uh, over half of them have been members of the House of Lords. um, And partly that's because well, we needed to make up the list, really. Uh, but also there's there's been um, over the course of um, the time that we've been looking at. Um, there's there's always been a, a, a bit of a confusion as to who's actually leading a party, because um, back in previous centuries, the House of Lords and the House of Commons had equal power. And so you had people who were prime minister from both House of Commons and from the House of Lords. And so when you go into opposition, it's quite difficult sometimes to work out who's actually the leader of that party. There wasn't a a formal role. um, They weren't elected. They sort of emerged as the leader. So we've had this confusion between whether the person who was um, the leading opposition figure in the Commons or the leading figure in the Lords was actually the leader of the opposition. But today, we're really sort of getting to the crunch of it. And as I say, this is the last one from the House of Lords. And there's a very good reason for that. We're looking at um Henry Petty Fitzmaurice, who was the fifth Marquis of Lansdowne. Excellent name.
1: Excellent um, name. If you're gonna make it, up a if you're gonna make <laughs> up a, a a peer leader of the opposition, Henry Petty Fitzmaurice is fifth Marquis of Lansdowne, he's excellent.
2: And he, and it might also sound familiar to some some listeners as well, because um we had the third Marquess of Lansdowne as our fourth leader of the opposition um some time ago. Um and this is his grandson, um, who a bit of a family business being leader of the opposition, um, and he Um, was born in um, 1845. I hope you got your bell handy because uh, he was educated at guess where? (gasps) Is it Eton and Oxford? It was Eton and Oxford. There we go. Um, I can't promise it's the last time we'll have that. But anyway, um, and he then succeeded to the title as Marquis of Lansdowne at the age of 21. Uh, Firstly, as a liberal, and he was a member of Gladstone's government uh, in various uh, junior positions um, initially. Um, And then he was appointed in 1883 as Governor General of Canada. um, And he did that for five years and was then uh, immediately after that appointed as Viceroy of India. So he was sent off around the empire to sort of govern the colonials um, and then he returned to the UK um, sort of about a decade later and um, was then uh, more aligned at that time with the Liberal Unionists who were aligned with the Conservatives so he was then appointed by the Conservative Prime Minister Lord Salisbury as Secretary of State for War uh, and then as Foreign Secretary and he served in those positions for quite a long time as well. He was in office as Foreign Secretary until Uh, 1905, um, during which time he did all sorts of uh, things, including overseeing the Entente Cordiale with France. Um, But the period we're interested in is his role as leader of the opposition. So he was um, in the Lords, um, and uh, from 1903, he was the leader of the Conservatives there. And then the Conservatives went into opposition in 1905. Um, And that period from 1905 to 1911 was crucial in this relationship between the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Um, First of all, the Liberals introduced what they called the People's Budget, which increased... Uh, Taxes, so that uh, they could increase um, benefits to working people. And this was hugely controversial. And so the House of Lords, which of course had a a huge conservative majority, was very opposed to it. And they voted it down. And Lansdowne was uh, leading them at the time. He tabled the motion to reject it. Um, He was very cautious about his role in opposition there because in order to preserve the um, credibility and the position of the House of Lords, they had to be a bit sparing about voting down uh, measures that had been... Uh, passed by an elected government, but on this one um, he faced a lot of pressure from his backbenchers uh, to do that, and this was hugely controversial. And so this is what uh, ended up creating the um, the constitutional crisis that led to the House of uh, the Parliament Act, which uh, reduced the power of the House of Lords permanently. So it's from that moment on, this crisis over the House of Lords and the People's Budget, um, that we see the House of Lords relegated, and that's why from here on all of the power and all of the leadership is in the House of Commons.
1: That was Nigel Fletcher telling me the story of Henry Petty Fitzmaurice, the fifth Marquess of Lansdowne. And lastly, on this roundup of the leaders of the opposition, I was off, so Carol Walker spoke to Nigel about the Unionist leader, Joseph Chamberlain.
2: Well, this week's uh, leader of the opposition is Joseph Chamberlain, um, who's a very significant figure um, in political history. Um, and uh, you might remember some years ago um, uh, not too long ago, in fact, when um, Theresa May was prime minister, um, one of her um, joint chiefs of staff, Nick Timothy, um, was uh, is actually a former um, biographer of, of Joseph Chamberlain. He's a great hero of his. Um, and there was a lot of commentary at the time about the influence of Joseph Chamberlain on particularly Nick Timothy and on, on Theresa May and his, his branch of um, sort of civic conservatism, which is quite odd because Joseph Chamberlain actually himself wasn't a conservative. He began as a radical liberal. Um, And although um, he's perhaps uh, to some people more notable for the fact that he was the father of Neville Chamberlain, of course, later a conservative prime minister, um, he was a considerable political figure in his own right. Um, But his justification for being on our list of leaders of the opposition is a little tenuous. We've had this with a few of of the others, Um, but um, he was leader of the opposition. And uh, if you look at the dates, it was between the 8th of February 1906 and the 27th of February 1906. So a very brief tenure as leader of the opposition in the House of Commons. Um, But as with a lot of them, that belies a a much more significant um, career. And what's unusual about him is that he made his name, Uh, first of all, as a local government figure. He was mayor of Birmingham. Uh, And if you go to Birmingham now, there's um, memorials and statues to Chamberlain, um, I think Chamberlain Square. Um, He was a a very significant figure in um, the civic history of of Birmingham. And that's where he made his name. But as I say, he was um, not a conservative. He began as a liberal. um, And he has the distinction of having uh, by some accounts, uh, caused uh, a major split in both main parties of the time. Um, he was a, a liberal. He was um, in Gladstone's government. Uh, first of all, um, he was president of the Board of Trade um, and uh, and then served uh, later on as uh, president of the lo- uh, chair of the local government board um, as well. He was offered the position of um, chancellor um, and of... Um, foreign secretary in the government of Lord Salisbury later on, the Conservative Prime Minister, Um, and that came about because he um, split with Gladstone over the issue of Irish Home Rule. It's quite um, uh, apt that we've just had um, Mary Robinson, the former president of of Ireland, on on the show. Um, This was a major issue of the time and caused a huge split in the Liberals, Um, and so uh, Chamberlain, although he didn't join the Conservatives, became um, a Liberal Unionist, and that was the sort of label under which he he then served for the rest of his career. So okay. he had this gradual move towards the Conservatives um, and so served not only in a Liberal cabinet, but also then um, in a Conservative one. Um, and so that was uh, that was his, his trajectory in his career. And then we get to this very brief period as leader of the opposition, um, which came about because uh, he caused another split in the Conservative Party. <laughs> um, uh, as we've talked about um, in previous weeks, the Conservative Party is... Um, rather prone on occasion to um, splitting on on issues, uh, usually of um, uh, sort of exports policy or imports policy, um, the the corn laws in the 19th century. And then we had this huge split that happened over tariff reform. There was a big um, divide between those who wanted uh, to go for what was called imperial preference, um, putting tariffs on uh, imports from outside the, the British Empire, And those who were in favour of free trade, and Joseph Chamberlain was very much in favour of um, imperial preference. Um, He was against um, sort of free trade in that sense, and that caused a huge split in the Conservative Party. So um, he split first the Liberal Party, then the Conservative Party, um, and (laughs) And, and then the Conservative Party. And yeah. so,
0: Nigel, I mean, he was clearly a significant figure. And and yes, he's very well celebrated in Birmingham, as you can see as you go around the city. What was it about him that attracted Theresa May and some of the key figures around him, around her? Well, it's this
2: idea of, um, of being a... Um, a sort of a non-socialist progressive, in a sense, I think. Um, I mean, um, Nick Timothy certainly, I think, could uh, could expound on this in in sort of um, much more eloquently than, than I can. But I think it's the attraction of um, of somebody who um, sees the virtue of sort of a, a form of.
1: As I say, of, of, of civic conservatism. That's so what we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget, you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from?
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.